So it's Friday night. And I don't know if you can hear, but in the background, outside my workshop, you can just about make out the sound of the birds singing. It's a beautiful evening, but boy, has it been a long week. And although it always feels on a Friday, like I've got to the end of the week, of course, being Friday, it's Saturday tomorrow, which means another working day. But hey, I'd much rather be busy than quiet. So I'm stood in my workshop with a pint of beer, recording this podcast before I light the barbecue and chill out, at least for the evening. I'm Paul, and this is the Mastering Portrait Photography Podcast. So quite a lot has happened in the past few weeks. Uh, primarily, and of course at the top of all of our lists, it was Sarah's 50th birthday. <laughs> uh, when we asked her what she wanted, she said, I want to feel special. And I think we achieved that. Uh, we had a fantastic night out in Oxford, watched the sun go down, drank, at missed the last train home, had to pay 50 quid for a taxi. Uh, then a couple of days interspersed with work. And on then Friday night, that was the Tuesday, on the Friday night, some friends of ours took us out on the Belmont Pullman. And I have to say, you really should do it if you get the chance. I wasn't entirely certain, entirely certain, uh, whether I was going to enjoy it, but in fact, I could not have been so far off the mark. It was utterly, utterly splendid. It left London, Victoria at about six in the evening. We chatted, we drank, we ate, we had our own little compartment on what can only be described as a cross between the Hogwarts Express and the Royal Train. The food was amazing. The service was exemplary and because it was our friends who treated Sarah, the company was beyond reproach. It was simply a glorious evening as the train clattered and waved its way out of London, around Surrey and then back into uh, Victoria Station. It was a little bit weird to be in London at five o'clock in the evening in full penguin outfit. But hey, you just have to carry yourself with a degree of confidence. And at being London, nobody really batted an eye. So uh, thank you to everybody uh, on the Belmont Pullman for making uh, myself, Sarah and our friends feel quite so welcome. And in particular, of course, I don't think my friends listen to this podcast, uh, but if they should happen to catch it, thank you to them for the tickets. It was really quite something special. And then on the Saturday, we had to navigate the biggest diplomatic challenge I've ever, ever needed to work through. And that is the fact that the government failed to increase the numbers from a maximum of 30 to whatever it was they said they were going to. So having invited 54 people to Sarah's outdoor party, or well, it was supposed to be a house party, we now had a maximum of 30. Cue an awful lot of shuffling around. And in the end, all we could do was have friends on the Saturday night and family on the Sunday. So an amazing fancy dress party on Saturday night, 30 people and not a person more, a lot of alcohol and a lot of weird fancy dress. It was absolutely uh, brilliant. And then, of course, on Sunday we had uh, all of our family over for an afternoon sort of, of drinking, lunch and chatter. It was brilliant. All those days, Oxford on the Tuesday, the Belmont Pullman on the Friday, fancy dress on the Saturday, family on the Sunday. And oh my God, do I feel tired on the Monday. It has been a long few weeks. And now, of course, I'm working my way through the backlog of work, uh, not least of which because when we found out the party had to be outside, I managed to rig a big pair of garden sails just in case it rained. 
Luckily, it didn't because at 4am on Monday morning in a sudden downpour and a huge, and I mean huge, bang, one of the bolts failed where the rain was just that little bit too heavy, didn't run off the one of the sails. It sagged and eventually the weight of the water snapped a bolt. That's how much weight it was carrying. And it went with a bang. I have to say I was relieved that it was a bolt that went and it didn't yank a beam out of the back of our 700-year-old thatch cottage. I think that would have been a disaster. Uh, but it did wake us up at 4am. Uh, clawing through the backlog, though, uh, we still managed to have three reveals and a handful of portrait shoots during the week. But I am now honestly chasing my tail on all things disk space. It happens periodically where I just get a little bit behind and the disk units fill up. Our live disk unit is a Drobo 5D, I think. Slightly older Drobo. I say slightly older. It's not that old. Uh, it's got about 14 terabytes in there. It's got 20 terabytes, 20 terabytes of disk. So what's that come down to? About 10 terabytes of usable, maybe 12 terabytes of usable. Uh, but it keeps filling up and I keep trying to move stuff off. Uh, but because we've been shooting more than we've been doing reveals just at the moment, uh, some of that is building up. Uh, Sarah suggested I should just get another disk unit. But in the end, I don't think that fixes the problem. Getting another 10 or 12 terabytes simply gives me another 10 or 12 terabytes that I'll fill up eventually and still have the same problem. So right now, uh, I'm trying to work through a whole new strategy, a whole new policy of how we manage the live data to try and keep on top of archiving away anything that's a dead uh, a dead job. And it's, the problem is that every job, I want to have one last look at it to make sure there's nothing I've missed for my portfolio or maybe for a competition. And that just takes a little bit of time and it's time I haven't had. And so as much as the disk is filling up, I just haven't had an opportunity to sit down and hive away those pictures that I really, really, really want to keep. And I don't do it. I've talked about this before. I don't do it at the time the job is live because I'm too close to it. I'd like a little bit of time afterwards to go back and explore the folders. Just check, just check that there isn't an image or two that actually they may never have gone to the client, but they're the images that I think actually there's something magical about it, particularly when it comes uh, to competitions. So I suspect I'm going to be chasing my tail on disk space for a little while longer. Uh, change some light bulbs. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm doing these updates, I think, Do you know what, it all sounds a bit mundane. Uh, but my Profoto D1s, uh, both of the modeling lights went within about a week of each other. So I went across to Profoto and then to a couple of suppliers to look up the price of the modeling lamp. And the modeling lamp's about 40 quid, 40 of your glorious British pounds. That's quite a lot of money for a little light bulb. So I just, out of curiosity, popped the front diffuser off the uh, D1, which you'd have to do anyway to change the bulb, lifted the bulb out, the modelling lamp out, and had a quick look to see if I could find any details on it. And sure enough, it's got the Osram serial number of that bulb on it. It's a very particular bulb. And if anyone's curious and you have a D1, email me, because that bulb costs you £8. <laughs> eight pounds, not 48. Now, I don't mind there being a little bit of a markup to go to an official supplier for a rebranded or a white labeled product. I understand the mechanics of business, but when it is nothing more than the bulb that I'm now looking at on Amazon for eight quid, and I think I could have got it cheaper if I hadn't gone to Prime because I wanted it quickly, eight quid. I think a five times multiplier on a bulb simply to order it from Pro Photo or from Warehouse Express or any one of the other photographic suppliers is a little bit much. Just a little bit 
much. If they'd have doubled it or maybe trebled it, I would happily have gone along with that. I probably wouldn't even have looked for a different model. But no, five times. So I paid my eight pounds. I paid 16 quid because I bought two of them instead of 80 quid. And it's one of those things where sometimes you just have to do a little bit of homework because the photographic industry does quite like to sell you stuff that is uh, more expensive than possibly it needs to be. Uh, what else have I bought this week? Well, I've bought a pair. <laughs> I felt really guilty. So as you know, we've gone mirrorless. I have the Z7 II. Uh, I've already upgraded the 70 to 200 uh, to the uh, Z series f2.8 VR. Beautiful lens. That's my workaday lens. But uh, the weddings over the weekend dropped one of my 17 to 35s, which I was using on the adapter. Managed to stick the aperture so it no longer opens properly, which is annoying. It's not the first time I've done it. It's not always because I've dropped it. Sometimes it's just wear and tear. But it needs to go in for a service. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to pay another 500 quid to have that lens serviced. Or is it actually time? If I'm going to go mirrorless, we really need to push towards it. So I uh, bought a pair of lenses. Uh, I've bought the 14 to 24 f2.8 and the, uh, what is it? It must be the 24 to 70 f2.8. That's about four and a bit thousand pounds worth of glass. And did I feel good about it? Not really. <laughs> it felt like it's it, those lenses. They're my money lenses. And I was talking to a videographer about it the other day and lamenting just how much it cost to buy what essentially are your workaday kit. Four and a bit grand on two lenses. Uh, it's like buying very expensive tyres for your car. You have to have them. Without them, the car don't go anywhere. But it's hard to get excited about them. It's not, I really fancied like an 85 1.4 or maybe a 105 f2.8 or something. Or if, I mean, I don't even know if you can get them uh, my to replace my 105 f2. Something really cool or interesting, or maybe maybe even just a 50mm 1.4 or I don't know, a fine art lens, something. Um, I love buying glass because you can get really interesting effects out of it. These are not those. They are razor sharp. They are probably, the three lenses we now own on this camera are probably the three sharpest, most versatile lenses I have ever owned. I mean, they are just magical. They snap into focus quick. The stabilisation between... The lens and the camera actually is slightly scary because when you recompose the image, because I'm old school, I usually I forget that with mirrorless, you can actually focus using any single point on the entire screen. Nope, got mine locked in the middle like normal, <laughs> just like I've always done, because that was always the most sensitive focus point. So I'll focus on the eyes and recompose. The problem is the image stabilization, both in camera and on the lens, is so, so good it takes half a second for it to catch up because it's just thinking I've wobbled a bit and it holds the image steady. And I'm really struggling with that. It's a little bit weird, but I have to say the lenses are amazing. They are so sharp, so clear, no distortion or no discernible distortion, almost no diffraction. Uh, absolutely, absolutely fantastic. And of course, with all that stabilisation, I can now handhold down to about a third, half a second, which is great for doing pictures of buildings. I was down the Crazy Bear, this beautiful hotel that I work at quite a bit uh, this morning, taking pictures of some of their rooms and didn't even need to worry about a tripod, which is great when you're working in amongst a live service. They've got breakfast going on in the hotel. They've got guests milling around and having to have a tripod in there is just that little bit tricky. I do it. Uh, but they weren't gonna, there wasn't any space and there wasn't any time. So being able to work off the screen and handhold to about half a second, uh, now that is really 
cool. So in the end, I think these lenses will be worth every single penny I've spent on them, but I'm finding it quite hard to be excited. I ran a workshop this week. Just so much fun. So to James and Katie, who came down, Thank you for making our day uh, just so so interesting and so exciting. One of the things about running workshops, and I don't know if you don't run workshops, if you've never done teaching, uh, maybe it's hard to appreciate. But one of the things that comes out of running a workshop is how exciting it is for the people running it, me and myself, myself and Sarah, because you get to see somebody else's reaction, somebody else's excitement to what's possible or showing tricks. And I guess... I guess James must have seen that a bit in me because he. in one point we've got, uh, we've lit Luke. Now, Luke is the boyfriend of Michelle's daughter. So Michelle, who works with us, it's her daughter's boyfriend. He came in very kindly for the morning. Really good looking guy. We lit him beautifully, single light work. And James, I, I, in the studio, I nearly always just work with my 70 to 200. I very rarely take that off the front of the camera. Uh, but James stepped in with a wider angle lens and, look, and I looked at the back of his camera and it looked great. It was different to what I'm shooting as not something I would normally consider. But given how cool it looked, well, I stole a shot off him. I slapped one of my new wide angle lenses on and ran the same shot. I still think I'll carry on using my 70 to 200. But as with everything, when you are shooting, what you're actually doing is building a vocabulary, a set of phrases and words and ideas that you can call on at any time and I now know I've got another one and I've done it before but I'd forgotten just how cool it was and and I think James was I can't work out whether he's put out because I was copying copying his shot or whether he was pleased that I thought his shot was so good that it warranted copying I never know anyway uh, running the workshop absolutely brilliant and in the afternoon uh, our model was Lara so I've shot a couple of weddings this week uh, one of which was a huge wedding or it should have been a huge wedding and then it turned into a wedding for 53 people at the Red Lion in Beaconsfield, which is a, a town uh, about half an hour away from here. And although it was the numbers were dramatically reduced down, the actual wedding was simply stunning. And while stunning, and while the bride was getting ready, I'd remembered that she was having a very short honeymoon. And so <laughs> having watched how beautiful she was, I said, I don't suppose you fancy coming and standing in for a workshop on Wednesday afternoon, do you? Um, with a huge grin and a lot of excitement, she said, yes. So Lara, thank you. Uh, one of my brides who at the end of her very uh, relatively short, anyway, honeymoon, just a few days, stepped in, came to the studio and was uh, our model for the afternoon. Uh, sometimes you just got a chancy arm. It's the first time I've ever recruited a bride on her wedding day. <laughs> I think that might be a little excessive, uh, but it panned out beautifully. And the shots, certainly the shots that I've seen on the back uh, of my camera, uh, as ever the frustration with running a workshop, much as I love it, is that I'll only take one of each shot. You don't get a chance to develop it and work it because, of course, that's what the people who are attending the workshop get the chance to do. Uh, but the few shots, few shots that I have taken do look uh, exactly how I'd want them to. And uh, it was great to see the reaction from James and Katie, to see their energy levels rise, to see their excitement as to what's possible and how simple some of this stuff can be. Because I get really frustrated with the way that I think a lot of photography is taught, certainly when I came into the industry. I think it's better now. In my head, in my head, all I hear is, is this voice. Wow. You set your ISO to 100, you set your aperture to f16, your shutter speed to 1 180th of a second, your lights to whatever power your lights are at, and then you just adjust the ratios to get an even lighting pattern. Ah, that drives me crazy. It drives me crazy because none of it is about creativity. 
And I think, I actually think photography is this fascinating blend of the techniques, the technology and the art form. And actually the art form, the creativity is by far the most important element, though it gets lost sometimes when we're judging. It gets lost sometimes when we're teaching. But in fact, that's the most important thing is to get is to be free of the constraints and just shoot and create images and enjoy it and have energy for it. It's just a wondrous, wondrous thing. So uh, that was our Wednesday and then a couple of days uh, again of chasing my tail on edits and getting stuff ready for reveals over the weekend. Uh, anyway, on to the topic of this particular podcast. <laughs> I laugh because I seem to spend about two thirds of the time talking like stuff that's going on around me. And then one small third. Can you have a small third? Anyway, one third of the podcast talking about um, actually what the topic was I had in my head. And the topic this time round is... It's all about the asymmetry of your client relationships. So your business, your business is built on relationships. The relationships that you have within your team, the relationships you have with your suppliers, and the relationships you have with your clients. And if you think about it, they're all slightly different, but there's a certain aspect that I think people forget, and it's this, that each of your clients has one photographer but as a photographer, you probably have hundreds, if not thousands of clients. Think about that. You have many clients. They have one photographer. And if you think about the dealings you have with your suppliers, with your, I don't know, uh, service providers, the people, the company that services your car, your bank, uh, framers, album providers, I don't know, any, you name it. There's a myriad of suppliers you have when you run a photography business. And each of those suppliers will have thousands of you. Thousands. My framer, thousands. Album supplier, thousands. Service providers, internet providers, broadband providers. <laughs> Even our cleaners have got hundreds of clients. But I only have one of each of those. I'm expecting them to treat me like I'm unique. Each and every one of the people I deal with, I would like to think I have built a relationship with them as best I can. Some of them are remote. Uh, some of them I deal with face-to-face. -face. But all of them, I would expect any emails or phone calls or letters I get from them, any dealings at all, I'd expect to be treated like I'm important, like they are. I am their one client. They are my one energy provider, they should regard me as when at least when they're talking to me as the client, the one that they are talking to. And it's really easy, I think, to forget that. It's really easy to slide into this mental thing where I've got to send out a hundred emails, or I've got to send out a hundred flyers, or I've got to, I don't know, uh, sign two hundred prints in an afternoon. I say two hundred. I've never signed two hundred prints. We, <laughs> I don't know where that name number came from. It'd be like ten, uh, but nonetheless, to make sure that each signature is absolutely spot perfect, it's placed perfectly on the mount. I've taken the same care over the first one as the last one, because each of those clients only has one photographer, and of course that's really important. If you think about the definition of client retention, it is this: that they regard you as their photographer, the photographer they use. That's what retention is. If you have no retention, they've got five photographers or you're no longer one of their photographers. If you have great client retention, you hold on to your clients. They regard you as the photographer, 
They're going to come back to you in five years or 10 years or at the next big family event, certainly in social photography. If it's commercial, they'll come to you the next time they need that particular style of headshot or boardroom shot. You are the photographer they use. And you have to remember that in everything you do. Because when it goes wrong, if you get an email from one of your suppliers and it makes you feel like you're just one of 100, well, all of the other people we deal with are doing this, then it doesn't half upset you because it reminds you that you're not regarded. That split second that that email was sent, they forgot. They forgot that you are not just one of a hundred or one of a thousand or one of 10,000. You are you and you regard them as your only supplier in whatever it is that they're supplying. And you need to remember that too when you're dealing with your customers, when you're writing emails, writing letters, signing prints, signing cards, even the wording on your website needs to be cognizant of the fact that each of your clients regards you as their only photographer. Best bear that in mind, huh? Anyway, I hope that's a thought to bury away. Thank you for listening right to the end of this episode. Hopefully... It was interesting, or at least a welcome distraction from whatever it was that you were actually meant to be doing. If you've enjoyed it, please do subscribe wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. And please, please, please feel free to leave us a review. We honestly do read them all, even if there's no obvious way for us to leave you a reply. And head over to masteringportraitphotography.com where you'll find a whole heap of content, all of it dedicated to the art, the craft and the business of portrait photography. And as ever, if you'd like to contact me directly, please just email paul at paulwilkinsonphotography.co.uk. That's paul at paulwilkinsonphotography.co.uk. And whatever else, remember, be kind to yourself. Take care.